Islamic Golden Age, the rationalists and the traditionalists squared off in Baghdad and in other cities in debates about the proper direction of Islamic theology and philosophy. This was a debate that would have enormous consequences for the future of this movement and really for all of Western civilization. This was no mere academic debate. This was a conflict that ended up putting people in jail, seeing them tortured and or killed. And, for better or worse, it would determine the direction of Islamic science and philosophy for the future. Well, if there was one man who managed to bridge the gap and produce the type of theology that would become the orthodoxy in Islam, that was al-Ashari a man whose name is today synonymous with Islamic orthodoxy. And he, and his system of thought, is our subject today. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Up until now in this series, we've talked about an ongoing battle inside the Abbasid Empire between the traditionalists and the rationalists, who we've talked about as the Mutazilite school of theology. The traditionalists, who had a strict reliance on the Hadith, or the sayings and teaching of the Prophet, were typically represented by the Hanbali school of law, which is named after its founder, Ibn Hanbal, and today is known as the most strict form of Islamic law, the Hanbali school. Well, as you remember, the Khalif al-Ma'mun, really the most vigorous proponent of Mu'tazilite rationalism, he even established an inquisition in which people like Ibn Hanbal were arrested and tortured. And you may have remembered that we've mentioned several times that despite their dominance, during this golden age of the Caliphate, the Mutazilites would eventually fall from grace and today would be considered heretics by most. Well, we're going to look a little bit about how we get there, how this situation changes so drastically, and most importantly today, we want to talk about what replaces Mutazilite theology. Today's subject is Abu al-Hasan al-Ashari, who is known as the Great Reconciler, and whose theology, Asherism, or Ashari theology, is going to bridge the gap between these two seemingly irreconcilable positions. His school, the Ashari school of theology, is the main orthodox school of Islamic theology today. It's one of the few that is acceptable. And his interpretation of the big questions of theology and philosophy would be the one that would become dominant, for better or worse. Well, before we go ahead, we need some context, of course. Now, we've talked about a number of different things in the past, and particularly a number of different schools of thought or ideas. And it's easy to get these mixed up. Remember again, as we always say, uh, the Islamic civilization is a complete entire empire, and so it's got all aspects of civilization. So it's easy to confuse maybe what we'd call apples and oranges here. So we've talked about Islamic law, we've talked about Islamic philosophy, we've talked about Islamic theology, and it's easy to see that these can get mixed up. 
So when we talk about someone being a Hanbali, for example, we're talking about a legal school, one of the four main schools of Islamic law. And of course, to run an entire empire, law was incredibly important. When we say someone is a Mutazilite, we're talking here about theology, or what it was really called in Arabic was kalam. And this is slightly different than talking about philosophy. So when we're talking about a conflict between Hanbalis and Mutazilites, it kind of is like talking about different types of apples versus different types of oranges because they're coming from different domains. I mean, we're talking about a school of law versus a school of theology. But it's important because around the Mutazilites, there were a whole uh, alliance of law, philosophy, and theology, as there were amongst the Hanbalis. So although there's different things, in a sense, apples and oranges, the way that they look at the world is very important. So the Hanbalis based their system of law very strictly on tradition. The Mutazilites, of course, based their theology very strictly on rationalism, and they both had a lot of power. Even today, we talk about conflicts of opinion and conflicts in the schools between scientists teaching evolution and preachers teaching a view of creationism. Well, they're coming from different domains, but the way they look at the world and the things they're fighting over have a lot of overlap. And this is very important here. So, of course, law would always be more important than philosophy or theology in Islam. We're talking about an entire state, an empire, a complete political and social system. So everybody had to deal with Islamic law, no matter who you were. Philosophy and theology were the concerns of about as many people as they are today. A very limited number of people are dealing with these things. So kalam, what we're calling theology here, or really speculative theology, was dealing with questions about the nature of things, about things you had to figure out about God. I mean, if it was something you had to do, okay, like how do you pray, who could marry whom and when, what is lawful to eat and not to eat, that's Islamic law. If you want to know how did God create the world, is the Quran eternal, what's the nature of man, where does sin come from, and so on, that's theology. And then philosophy is really the wider questions that go beyond these religious questions. What's the nature of the universe? What's the nature of matter? What is life? And so forth. So, just like today, a lot more people have to deal with basic laws, like what can you eat, who can you marry, where can you go, then are dealing with the nature of the universe. So despite those basic differences, it's obvious that these two positions are going to overlap and clash, primarily because they have different goals in mind. It's mostly how you get the answers to those questions. So maybe one group is trying to figure out what is lawful to eat. The other group is trying to figure out the nature of the universe. But it's the methods that they're going to use and the implications of those methods that are going to clash. So let's take a real example. A simple question like whether God actually has two hands or not. Now the Quran definitely mentions God's two hands. So if you take that literally, you're going to run into some real logical problems if your job is to debate against Christians and Zoroastrians and pagans and so forth. If you make the claim that God literally has two hands, physical hands, you're going to open yourself up to a lot of attacks by them, particularly since the big claim of Islam against the Christians was that they divided God into parts, gave him partners, right? That they had three gods, essentially, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, if you're talking about God having separate hands and feet and so forth, it sort of lines you up for the same type of attack. And if this is what you spend your time doing, if you're in theological debates with really smart people, really good debaters, who are going to look for any flaw in your logic and try and expose it, well, that's a problem. Okay, So to say that God has two literal hands is something you're going to want to avoid to do. You're going to try and come up with 
some sort of explanation for that. You would say that the hands of God, like the foot of God, or the face of God's, are metaphors. They're not to be taken literally. Well, that's fine if you spend all your time in theological debate. If you write laws for a living that have to govern the state, that sort of reasoning isn't going to sit well. If things in the Quran that are stated in plain Arabic as facts are supposed to be taken as metaphors and symbols, what about all the rest of the stuff? What about the commands? What about hadith on how many times to pray? Are those metaphors too? And there are some interpreters who take them to be that way. When God says pray five times a day, he doesn't mean literally five times a day. He means to pray a lot. To be in a general attitude of prayer. Well, if you're writing laws, if you're trying to organize community and organize the religious rituals, you can't have that. Uh, you have to have clear definition of what is literal and what is not. And so we're already seeing some conflict going on here with this sort of loose interpretation. So although they're dealing with different types of questions and really working in different domains, it's a question of how do we approach all these scriptures? Do we take them literally or do we take them in a rational sense? Well, Al-Ashari is known as the guy who bridged this gap, and this gap was pretty big by his time. Remember, we've got Al-Ma'mun throwing people in jail. He's taking Ibn Hanbal and having him flogged, literally, for being such a traditionalist. Well, Al-Ashari is the guy who comes up with a system that could make both sides reasonably happy. Now, we're going to talk about whether that's really the case, but for better or worse, it's his system of theology that's going to replace Mu'tazilism, that will become the orthodoxy for Sunnis, that allows enough rationalism for the scientists and the philosophers to do their thing, but also allows for enough traditionalism and doctrinary interpretations to keep the traditionalist relatively happy. Now, there's one other main system of Sunni theology which is acceptable today, that's Al-Maturidis, which developed at the same time and is actually very, very similar. Um, both of them are, are very near to be the same. And both of them are a huge departure from Mu'tazilism, and that's what the big change is going to be. Was this man? Abu al-Hasan al-Ashari was born in Basra and lived most of his life in Baghdad. And as you know by now, these are the two big centers of Abbasid intellectual activity in Iraq. We've talked about so many scholars who end up either in Basra or Baghdad or both. He was born in 873 which was about the end of the time of what we called the Anarchy at Samarra, which is really when the last Abbasid caliphs with any real power were dying off, and the Persian administrators and Turkish military, those two very distinct groups, were really taking power. Now the timing is significant because al-Ashari begins his studies as a Mutazilite under a very famous teacher named al-Juba'i. And, of course, al-Ashari was a star pupil. He rose to prominence, and a lot of historians believe he probably would have taken over the leadership of the Mu'tazilites eventually. But as we've seen, the fortunes of the Mu'tazilites were going to change. Okay, they were riding high, they had their moment in the sun, and let's be honest, they really abused it. But after about 30 years from their peak, they were beginning to fall, and in their battle against the traditionalists, like the Hanbalis, whom they were having locked up just a few decades earlier, was turning against them. Now, in hindsight, it's kind of easy to understand why this would be. Mutazilite rationalism appealed to the elite, 
to the philosophers and the scientists and those who patronize them, and particularly rulers who consider themselves exceptionally smart, like El Ma'mun, who was very, very proud of his intellectual prowess. But the literal, traditionalist legalism was much more popular among the general populace and amongst the people who really had to maintain control. So, the age-old question of whether el-Ashari was the man who shaped the times or whether the times shaped him naturally pops up, and we can never really answer it, but it is easy to see that el-Ashari was coming into prominence at a time when being Mutazilite was sort of becoming old hat, and the power was swinging back to the traditionalists. So the bottom line is, he was a really smart guy who developed the theories that were needed at that time. Rather than just abandoning rationalism and joining the wave of traditionalism, as many of his peers did, and certainly rather than going back and leading a, a stunning counterattack for Mutazilism, El Ashari was able to kind of reconcile these truths. Now, we're going to see how well he could actually do that. But in order to do that, of course, we have to look at what are some of the controversial issues that they were fighting about. Well, when we get right down to the heart of it, all of this comes down to the fact that Mutazilites believed in human reason. And when I say they believed in it, I mean they really, really believed in it. I mean the way you can believe in anything. To the extent they said that reason could explain everything and that any truth that God created could be uncovered by human reason. Now, their concession to God, so to speak, was that he created reason. So God endowed us with reason. That was his greatest gift, and we were supposed to use it. And that reason enough was alone. You could use that to figure out really all the truths of the universe. Now, of course, they would admit that God revealed things to people all different sorts of ways. He gave them visions, prophecies, messages. He spoke to them in voices, sometimes in metaphors and allegories and so on. I mean, he would have to say that because, of course, I mean, you couldn't say that the prophet was not important. But their point was these things, truths that were revealed, whether it was through a vision or an image or a voice, would never disagree with reason. It would never disagree with what a really smart person could figure out by themselves. Well, why do you have all these other revelations? Well, you can guess. It's for people who weren't as smart as they were or who weren't as well-trained. Now, again, you have to remember, the, we tend to idolize these guys in the West, and certainly in Western academia, uh, the Mutazilites are the darlings of Islam. But they were pretty cocky. I mean, we've already seen that. I mean, they're kind of like, uh, if they couldn't convince you that their way was true, they'd have you locked up and flogged. Okay, so they, they really loved their power. But they believed that reason could explain everything. Remember some of the theology we've already seen. They said just using pure reason, you could figure out that there had to be a God, that he had to invent the universe, that he had to do it the way he did, and so on. And now, of course, not everybody is that smart that they can do that. So for some people, we just give them a direct revelation. But us really smart guys, we can figure that out. Now, that's not exactly the way they'd explain it. But when you get right down to it, and when they started to get on your nerves a little bit, that's pretty much the way you'd see it. So specifically, the unity of God was one of the biggest issues that they had to deal with. So let's remember again what the Mutazilites' job was. They were the people who were going to go out and defend Islam against the other religions. They were going to go head-to-head -head against them, and mostly we're talking about Christians that they would be uh, arguing against. Now, to give them their due, I mean, this was not like what was going on in medieval Europe, when we think about the inquisitions that were going on there, I mean, they had a way of making you accept their theology. Uh, they'd just torture you until you did. I mean, here we have the caliph setting up debates, bringing in Christians, bringing in Jews, and having them debate against his best thinkers. So they're going to win this on an intellectual level. But of course, the biggest attack against Christianity 
and this really goes to the, the whole founding of Islam, was that Christianity had weakened monotheism by letting in a lot of other stuff. And let's be honest, that's a really easy point to make, uh, particularly if you're talking about you know, the medieval Catholic religion or Orthodox Christianity. I mean, we're talking about prayers to the saints, prayers to the Virgin Mary, uh, you know, relics of saints and so forth. So the big push in Islam was pure monotheism. Like you've taken this talk about one God, but you've really split it out into a lot of different parts. We worship God as a pure whole, indivisible. So it's easy for the Motazilites to argue against, say, a God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? But also talking about things that make it sound like God had parts, whether God had body parts or God had attributes, like God's mercy, God's wisdom, and so on. Now, let's be honest. You have to be in a really intense philosophical debate to be caring about these kind of points. I mean, if you can say that talking about God's mercy is dividing God, I mean, you're really getting into an intense debate. I mean, most of us just go through life with these concepts and we don't really worry about it. When we talk about the hand of God, I mean, do we really think God has a hand? Yeah, I mean, we don't really worry about that sort of thing. But the Mutazilites, they are in these intense debates. And so if you're the Christian arguing against the Mutazilite, arguing against the Muslim, what you're going to try and show is, well, you guys do the same thing. You say that we weaken monotheism, but you do the same thing, and therefore you're no better than we are. Yeah, we may have Father and Son and Holy Ghost, but your God has hands. Your God has mercy and kindness. So if God has mercy, God has kindness, God has wisdom, that means God's wisdom is a separate part from his mercy. Well, as soon as God starts to have separate parts, he starts to sound like this Christian God, which, you know, is in the Muslim conception is, you know, impure because it's got all these different parts to it and it's divisible. So what the Mutazilites are going to have to go out there and do is to say, no, we don't do that. We don't acknowledge any separate parts. God is one pure, indivisible essence. Now, of course, if you're going to go out and defend a religion, you have to use the scriptures that you're given, the hadith that you're given. You have to base it on those. So they would look at things like God's hands mentioned in the Quran, God's foot, God's shin is even specifically mentioned in the Quran. Um, and they would say, these are just metaphors. These are metaphors for the weak-minded. Of course, God doesn't have two actual hands with fingers on them and bones in them. That's not what they mean. This is something, uh, a way that the average person can conceive of what God's doing. And that doesn't weaken the scriptures because obviously any smart person would be able to look at this and understand that. And the same thing is true of God's attributes. When we talk about God's mercy and God's kindness and wisdom, these are not separate things that can be divided. These are just ways of explaining God so that man can kind of grasp it, right? What they would say is that God is 100% pure, he's just God. But we have to understand the things he does, so we create categories like wisdom to talk about certain things God does and kindness to talk about certain other things and God's wrath and God's justice. Those are our concepts to try and understand God or really for the weak-minded to try and understand them because the Motazilite understands God as just being pure God. Now, of course, this is heresy to the traditionalists. Whatever the Quran and the prophet said was 100% true. If it says God has two hands, then just deal with it. Okay, so that's the standoff we have at this point. So Al-Ashari comes along, and remember he spent his life studying uh, Motazilite theology. He knows it very well. He knows all the questions and the answers to him. 
or at least the answers a Mutazilite would give. And he knows the answers a traditionalist would give. And so Al-Ashari is going to come along here, and really what he does with all his questions is to concede that there are some things we can't understand, that human reason is limited. Now this, of course, is unacceptable to the Mutazilites. I mean, you basically can't tell a Mutazilite there's anything that he couldn't understand. Now, this is slightly different than saying there are things we don't yet understand or we haven't yet figured out. So, like, let's say the greatest Abbasid scientists, they had no clue about DNA, for example. And in fact, their attempts to explain what we now call genetics, we know were flat wrong. But that's because they didn't have the information. They didn't have the kind of data and experimentation that we have. So it's reasonable to say a guy like Ibn Sina or even Aristotle, if he could see all the science we have today, if he had access to the same kinds of experiments and data that Watson and Crick did, would have been able to understand DNA. It just didn't have a way of doing it at that time. What Elishari is talking about is something different. He's saying there's things that we're just not meant to understand. God has just not made it for us to understand them. So his answer to a question like the body parts is, yes, God does have hands and a face and so on, but these are not the same as human hands or faces. And most importantly, the key part here is how they differ, we don't know. And that's a big departure from Mutazilite theory, is to say, we don't know and we can't know, at least on this earth. So, for example, God has two hands, we're told that in the Quran, so yes, it must be true. Now, are these like human hands? Do they have uh, bones, the same bones that we do? Do they have veins in them? We don't know, and we have no way of knowing, and we don't need to know. Okay, so that's a very big departure from the Mutazilite view, but it's also not fully embracing a traditionalist view to say, yep, God has two hands, and hand means hand, means exactly what you think a hand is. Okay, so whether this is a brilliant synthesis or just a compromise depends on your point of view, but it would work. In fairness, now, We've just given you a summary. In Al-Ashari's many books, he elaborates this in much greater detail, and he goes and exposes some of the weaknesses in the Mutazilite argument as well. But when you come down to it, he is still basically accepting both sides to a degree. So we have to consider it brilliant because it was what the Islamic society needed at that point to go on to not drift into pure traditionalism and reject science and reason altogether, and not to turn against Islamic law completely. Okay, so let's look at the other point we mentioned about God's attributes. If the Mutazilites didn't believe God had separate mercy and kindness and goodness and so on, then how could they explain the relationship of God to good and to evil? And this was one of the parts that really upset the traditionalists. Because the Mutazilite view on this was that good and evil, like a whole lot of other things, were concepts that existed in themselves and that were real. And this came from Greek thought and particularly Plato. If you studied anything about Plato, you know that he has the very important idea of the ideals, of the forms, that there is a pure good, a pure beauty, a pure symmetry. And these things exist. And that what we have on earth are just shadows of these imperfect versions. Now, of course, the Mutazilites place a high value on rationalism. So they say that most sane, normal people can tell good from evil. They can tell kindness from cruelty, and so on. And even people who are not Muslims, just the same way you can tell hot from cold, for example. And that these concepts exist by themselves in their logical and rational. Therefore, they said... God could only do good. He could only do kind. He couldn't do evil. And in fact, they went so far as to say God was compelled to do the good. 
Now, again, this is heresy to traditionalists, because why? You're taking good and evil, kindness, mercy, and you are making them separate from God, and that he has to follow them. I mean, you're almost taking God down a peg to a lower level, at least in their view. They believe God did everything. He could create, God can create anything, he could do anything. And so you can see why this would be a huge tension. I mean, you can't just let a question like this sit. So how is Al-Ashari going to deal with this? I mean, this is a, a big question. So his explanation is really much closer to the traditionalist view. And so he says, yeah, good and evil, these are real things, and we can really perceive them and we can understand them. But essentially, uh, good is what God does. Okay, God is there first, and what he does is good, and we only know of good from God. And evil, therefore, is the opposite. So just like God has attributes, these are not parts, but these are our way of understanding what God does. So in a way, what we recognize as goodness, kindness, mercy, comes from our observation of God's actions. And that's where we get those concepts. And evil, bad, cruelty, these are the opposites. And so this is not like a platonic view where goodness is sitting up on a pedestal apart from God, separate from God. And to answer that big question that the Mutazilites said that God was compelled to do the good and that human reason could easily understand what was good, so therefore humans could figure out what God had to do, the Asharis would give a famous example of why that wouldn't work. And so the one they used was they talked about the souls in heaven questioning God. So the souls who died young would complain, how come we only had short lives, but those other people, they got to live 80, 90 years? And then God would answer, well, I had to end your lives early because I knew you would do bad things, and if I let you do that, then you would end up in hell. At which point, all the souls in hell would call out, then how come you didn't end our lives early then? And so on. The point was, if you tried to put human reasoning onto what God had to do, since God is good, then he must do this in this situation, and he must not do this in another situation. It was very easy to trip you up. Uh, you could fall into a, a logical pit. You could paint yourself into a corner very easily, and that's what they would do. Okay, now, you might say that these explanations sound a lot like what you hear in Christianity. In fact, uh, to the degree that we discuss these things in church and Sunday school, these are basically what I learned about God. And in fact, these Ashari concepts are very close to what we have as basic Christian theology. And the reason is that there is a huge debt to Islamic philosophy and theology in the Middle Ages. Some of the greatest minds of the Christian Middle Ages uh, were influenced directly by thinkers like al-Ashari and particularly Ibn Sina. Okay, so anyway, the issue that really got people in trouble during the Mutazilite Inquisition we've talked about this before, was the createdness of the Quran. And I think, as we said before, it seems like a kind of a, a minor issue. Things we talked about just a moment ago, about God and the nature of good and evil, and whether God can choose to do good and evil, and uh, these would seem like these are bigger, bigger problems. But it was this ended up becoming the litmus test. So the question was, is the Quran a created thing or is it eternal and co-equal with God? Well, it seems like a kind of odd question. It's not one that I would probably ever come up with. Uh, but it, the reason it became such a litmus test issue is because how you voted on this, how you answered this question, really affected what you thought about the entire creation. So just to recap, the Mutazilites had said that the Quran was a created thing. The traditionalists said that it was eternal, and this is the point they got sent to jail for. 
this is the Inquisition of Al Ma'mun, where you basically had to sign saying that you agreed that the Quran was a created thing. Someone like Ibn Hanbal wouldn't do that. He would rather suffer punishment and torture than to give uh, give in on an issue of such importance, and that made him a huge hero to the traditionalists. Okay, so why was this so critical? Okay, so just to recap, we have to first remember that the Quran in Islam is considered the divine, actual word of God. And it's slightly different than the way that Christianity looks at the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, when I was in school, I learned that God inspired the Bible. So we have the letters of Paul. We have uh, the Revelation to John. We have the Epistle of James. We have the Gospel according to Matthew. We have the Gospel according to Luke. And there's some differences in them. And that God inspired these humans to write these works. Well, this is one of the major issues upon which Islam is founded. And this is one of the major issues where they believe that Christianity went wrong. And they believe that Christianity let the scriptures devolve into something else, that they were not at the level of scripture. So in Islam, remember, the Quran is the actual words of God in Arabic exactly the way they were revealed, to the extent of we developed a very elaborate system of trying to record the actual sounds, the actual pauses between the sounds, the silences between the sounds, to say that this is it. This is exactly what God conveyed. Well, you can see the problem from a Mutazilite point of view. If you're talking about the Word of God, that starts to sound like another part, like the hand of God, the mercy of God, the fill-in-the-blank of God. And this is what they've already been fighting against. If we have the Word of God, well, the Word of God is therefore different than every part of God that is not the Word of God. Therefore, you've got a divisible God, and it again, you're falling into the same traps that you're accusing the Christians of, and so they can't do that. So, uh, for better or worse, the Mutazilites have to say, God is only God. He is an indivisible self, eternal, and everything else has to be created. So therefore, the Quran, although they give it great respect and say it's at a high level, it is a created thing. It has to be with the kind of position they're taking in their arguments. Again, this is pure heresy to traditionalists. Remember, they think that you're cheapening the Word of God. You're putting it on the same level as other created things, like planets, stars, horses, rocks, which to, to them is pure heresy. Their whole point is that the Quran is at a, a level that is divine and infallible, and therefore it's our source for everything that we do. Well, you can probably guess what Ashari's response is going to be. He's going to say that, yes, the Quran is the eternal, uncreated word of God, in essence. But it is created in its form that we have it at a specific time. And it only took on letters and sounds. Remember, the Quran is only the Quran in Arabic. It's revealed in Arabic exactly the way it sounds and exactly the way it's preserved. So, although the Quran is eternal and uncreated in its meaning, in its essence, the point where it took on letters and sounds was at a specific point of time. So, that part was created. So, again, we're sort of splitting the difference. The Quran is eternal and uncreated, but there was a point where the Quran we have was created. Or maybe we're saying that both sides are sort of correct at the same time. Now, this isn't going to make anybody really happy, but it's going to be enough to satisfy both sides that they can go on and do what they need to do. Okay, now to go on to other issues, 
It might be a little bit surprising that the creation of the Quran was actually more controversial than the creation of the world. But it kind of makes sense because the world is mundane. It's not divine. So if we can settle that issue of the Quran, this divine thing, then talking about how the world is created is a bit easier. But it's still going to be a question on which al-Ashari has to weigh in. So again, the Mutazilites are big on the idea that God created a logical, ordered, rational world that human reason could understand. And of course, their friends and allies in this were the scientists who were busy trying to discover the natural laws of the universe. So they believed that God creates, say, something like gravity or puts the planets in orbit but then sets up systems that allow these to work by themselves. So, uh, for example, uh, God creates the orbits of the planets and they continue on these orbits on their own. God creates something like, let's say, the light, but light continues to move at a certain speed. God creates gravity and gravity continues to work in, with a certain formula that we can figure out on their own. So what they're saying is that God isn't actually moving every planet with these hands we say he doesn't have 24 hours a day. Well, you can guess what the traditionalist response to this is going to be. And you can kind of see their issue with it, right? It's like saying that God creates these natural laws of the universe, but they go and work on their own without him. So kind of like the Mutazilites are giving a nod to God and saying, yeah, he's the start point, but okay, he's done, he's out of the way, he's created everything, and it works on its own. So the real problem here is not just whether God is actually moving planets around with his hands, but it's the kind of questions that preachers are going to have to deal with on a daily basis. So did God just create a bunch of humans with free will and set them loose, or is God actually behind everything that happens? Right? I mean, the real issue is not what is causing the planet Neptune to move. The real question is, you know, what is causing my neighbor to go out and do bad things? Or what is causing me to go out and do something bad? If I go out and steal and hit my neighbor, uh, does that mean that God made me do it? Or did God just create the world and we're all, we all have free will and do what we want? So this comes to one of the most controversial points in Ashari theology. The view that they're going to develop, it's known as occasionalism in the West, but like most philosophical titles, it uh, doesn't tell you much at all. The reason it's called occasionalism is because it means that God controls every single occasion, every happening, every event, period. And the example that they use for this is touching a flame to cotton. Well, we all know what's going to happen if you touch a flame to cotton. It's going to burn. Or if it doesn't burn, then the conditions weren't right. Okay? If the cotton was wet or if there's no oxygen or whatever. But we know the same thing happens under the same conditions every time. The question is, why does the cotton burn? Now, you may have never worried about this in your whole life, uh, but they did. So, the Mutazilite answer is, God created the natural laws of the universe, like what causes combustion, what causes a solid object to burst into flame, as an example, and lets these things roll. So, they will govern every situation like that. Why does cotton burn? Because God created cotton and fire in such a way that it will burn, and every time someone touches cotton with a flame, it's going to burn. The Asherites, they're going to take a very different view, and one that is going to appeal to the traditionalists. They will say, every single time a flame touches cotton, God makes an individual decision to burn that cotton every single time. And this is going to apply to every situation. So when you let go of an object, why does it fall to the ground? 
not because God created a law of gravity and then just let it roll. God makes that happen every time, whether you want to say he pushes it down or pulls it down, every single time, every single raindrop that falls, and so on. Now, this may sound like the kind of thing that no normal person would worry about, and by itself, right, it's really speculative. I mean, do we really care why cotton burns? What it leads to, though, is human free will, and that's what they're arguing about. And this is why traditionalists don't like speculative theology in the first place. So remember, their position on the theology, the kalam, that the Mutazilites was doing was not that you're doing it wrong, that we have better answers than you. They're like, you shouldn't be talking about these things at all. Why debate hypothetical, completely unprovable ideas in the first place, right? I mean, there's absolutely no way to do an experiment to answer this question. It's, what again, why we call it speculative. And they say, you know, this is the kind of thing that rich people with too much time on their hands do. And let's face it, that's what Mutazilites in their gatherings with the Khalif and the emirs, that's exactly what they were. They'd get together every night, drink, sing songs, listen to poetry and jokes, and then debate about the nature of the universe and why cotton burns and so forth. Okay. That wasn't their job. They were interested in the neighborhood preacher who had to make rulings on disputes between neighbors, Okay, and divide inheritances and settle marriages and something like that. This is the sort of thing that just makes your life complicated. And this is why the traditionalists wanted to shut down the Mutazilites altogether. They say, okay, you shouldn't be answering these kind of questions. Now, the Mutazilites are, are interested in these questions because they lead to actual scientific things. If we're talking about the nature of the universe and how the planets move, that leads to astronomy, and then we can actually start talking about the effect that these have in physics and so forth. So what al-Ashari is trying to do is say we can still have both. We can have theology without ruining the whole preaching and legal system. Well, as far as free will goes, let's be honest, no religious system, or at least no monotheistic religious system, has really been able to give an answer to the question of free will that stands up to logic. And even the Mutazilites relied on a number of rhetorical tricks to try and deal with it. So hardly anybody wants to be remembered for their theory of free will in a religious system. Well, the Ashari answer isn't a whole lot better, but at least they're setting up a system in which you're saying, okay, we can't understand everything completely, and we just have to accept that. Human reason isn't going to explain everything. and Therefore, we can say that, yes, humans have free will, but yes, God is still in charge. How can those both be true? Well, we really can't fully understand it. We're not meant to fully understand it. Uh, therefore, you can all go on with your work. So it really is kind of like the hands argument, in the sense that we're saying, yeah, it's both at the same time. like Mutazilite rationalism is taking quite a beating here, and it really has lost a lot of ground. I mean, when we look at the points that were absolute in Mutazilite theory, uh, Ashari has knocked down a lot of them. He, he's taken away their biggest point, which is our reason and rationalism can explain anything and everything. Okay, But on the other side, he was against blind traditionalism as well. And in fact, he said that the traditionalists were doing great damage. Like the Mutazilites, he believed that reason was a gift from God and that we had a duty to use it. And he further believed that the prophet commanded us to seek knowledge and to do intellectual work. Now this is where the famous Hadith, which I mentioned before, the one where the prophet says to seek knowledge even all the way to China, come in. Now that's often cited as the reason that Islam has, or at least had, a very 
powerful intellectual tradition and supported science. Now, as we've discussed, there are hundreds and thousands of hadith in existence, only a tiny which, a percentage of which are actually accepted. So the point is not that that hadith from the Prophet about seeking knowledge all the way to China exists, or many others like it exist, or many others that seem to go against it exist. It's that authorities like Ashari, who had a lot of power at the time, built a system on hadith like that and used them to say that intellectual inquiry was still very important. Yeah, he's going to give the conservatives some due, but he's going to encourage this intellectual inquiry to continue. And we have to remember that this was at a time when traditionalism was getting stronger. It's going to continue to get stronger really in direct relation to how healthy the empire is politically and militarily. As things begin to fall apart, as the outside and internal threats continue to grow, traditionalism is going to continue to grow as well. And so Ashari's real accomplishment here I mean, even if we say that he turned away from rationalism on a lot of points, is that he kept it alive at all. The thing that really kills Mutazilism, it's not Ashari, it's the loss of official patronage from the rulers. It flourished under al-Ma'mun and his successors, but by the 11th century, the political balance had shifted. And this is going to be very true when the Turkish military rulers really come in and establish their strong Sunni conservatism. And even though the Abbasid Khalifs rule in name, it's going to be the Turks who are really running things. In this environment, Mutazilism is really going to fall, and Ashari is going to become the official uh, orthodox theology. Now, it's also said that the Shia are more amenable to the rationalism of the Mutazilites, and the place where Mutazilism continues today is in Shia Islam. Well, this is only kind of true. As we've mentioned all along, the Shia have a view of religious inspiration and interpretation continuing to be a live process, and this is through the Imams and their successors. And so they have this idea that religious inspiration continues. Sunni Islam can comes to rely more and more on tradition. And those traditions are going to become more and more firm as more of them are written down and there's more scholarship of them. And so the idea of using human reason and individual interpretation is going to be a lot more compatible with Shiism as the years go along. Additionally, the Abbasid Khalifs were much more Persian-oriented than anybody else who ruled. And particularly over the hundred-year period with the, the real power of the Abbasid Khalis. And so it's at this time that when the Turks begin to come in, they're going to be fighting heavily against the Shia, establishing this strong Sunni conservatism, and Mutazlaim is, is really going to take a beating, and its glory days are going to be over. By the time the Mongols sweep in in the 1200s and the destruction that they wreak, things are going to get much more uh, conservative. Now, having said all of this, we have to go back to the fact that rationalism doesn't necessarily mean more liberal and more tolerant. In the West, we tend to view it that way. And this is why the West tends to see the Mutazilites as pure good and the Asharis as bringing in a new dark age. Titles of books like Why the Arab World Turned Away from Science or The Closing of the Muslim Mind, these abound. There are plenty of them out there and they're not really based on much historical research. But as we can see, under the rationalism of the Mutazilites, uh, things could be pretty tough, pretty, uh, pretty brutal. And when we look at Shiism, yes, uh, Shia is definitely uh, more in line with individual reasoning. But over the course of its history, that has sometimes meant more liberalization. That has sometimes meant more conservatism. During the time of the last Shahs in Iran, 
Uh, Iran was definitely the most westernized liberal country in the Middle East, and the Shiite religious leaders who were close allies of the Shah and appointed by him, they used their power to help the Shah. Since the Iranian Revolution, of course, we tend to see Iran as one of the most hardline states, and certainly the Ayatollah Khomeini, who led the revolution, he used that independent reasoning to be much more conservative. Okay, so when we look at that, we have to remember that just because you're depending more on rationalism doesn't make you a nice guy, although we look at it that way in uh, the West, definitely. In any case, uh, the Ashari view still has a lot of support for science and philosophy, and some of the best science and philosophy in Islam is still to come in the age of dominance of the Asharis. I mean, definitely Genghis Khan and Tarmalane are going to have a much bigger impact on the, quote, closing of the Muslim mind than Ashari or his later follower, Al-Ghazali. Now, where does that leave us today? Asharism and its very close cousin, uh, the system of al-Maturidi, will become the main theological orthodoxies in the Muslim world definitely from the 11th century on. And in fact, in as recently as 2016, a major international conference was held to decide on the nature of Sunnism, what constitutes true Sunni Islam. Now this was definitely in response to uh, extremism. But what they came up with, and this was a decision that was signed by some of the leading figures in the Sunni world, for example, the Sheikh of Al-Azhar in Egypt and the State Mufti of Egypt, uh, the most senior clerics from India, uh, Muslim clerics from India, and so on. And so they defined Sunni Islam as the theology of the Asharites and the Maturidis, in matters of belief, followers of any of the four schools of law, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali, and followers of the Sufism of Imam Junaid al-Baghdadi in doctrine, manners, and spiritual purification. So essentially, it's got three components, law, Sufism, and theology. Now note, it's the four main Sunni schools of law that we've discussed it's the only two acceptable schools of theology from now on, Ashari and Maturidi and Sufism. And the fact that they mention al-Baghdadi, he was one of the pioneers of Sufism, so a huge number of Sufi orders are going to fall under that category. But we can see this was canonized as uh, a Sunni Muslim having these three components. And amongst the theological component, Ashari and Maturidi are the only two that are acceptable, and Mu'tazilism is definitely on there. Now, it's really felt that the real target of this conference was Wahhabism, the strict Islam of Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis were definitely upset by this uh, particular conference, and that's a whole other matter. But for our purposes today, it's notable that two definite theological schools, and only two, which are almost the same in what they teach, are identified as the only two orthodox ones in Sufi Islam. And that is all coming out from this man, al-Ashari. And so he has a huge impact in his effort to reconcile what he saw as the conflicting forces of traditionalism and rationalism. How well he did at that, you have to be the judge yourself, uh, but we've talked about the way he did it. And most significantly, he takes this idea that absolute pure rationalism is possible and that it can explain everything in the world. Well, thank you so much for your kind intention. It's been a pleasure to talk about al-Ashari and the development of Islamic theology. I hope that you will stay with us in the future. We look forward to seeing you again. Shukran jazilin. Wa ma'asalamah.